Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about RNA and how it can be used to protect your brain. Now, you might have heard about DNA, and you probably heard about RNA in the context of maybe vaccines. But this week we focus on ways RNA can be applied to protect the development of brains and to help it recover after some traumatic events. In the past year, you've probably heard a lot about RNA, and probably in the context of RNA vaccines. But RNA is an important part of biology that's now getting its moment in the sunlight. Now, one of the things that is interesting about RNA is that it undertakes lots of different roles inside our body. It's similar to DNA in many ways, but one of the big differences is, for example, that it has a single chain as opposed to the dual helix that you see in DNA. RNA is ribonucleic acid as opposed to deoxyribonucleic acid for DNA. And overall, they're they're pretty similar. This complex chain of sugars linked together by these crossbeds, these phosphate groups. Now, the thing is with RNA is it has an extra oxygen atom. Now, why that is is interesting, but what the result of that is, is it actually makes it less stable than DNA. Now, the thing is, being less stable isn't a bad thing. It means it's actually used for short-term or transmission of information rather than the long-term stable moons of DNA. Things that rapidly change tend to use RNA as their basis of the genetic material. Things like viruses and influenza, even HIV, they use RNA because it's a quick alternative and it keeps them one step ahead of immune systems. That's why you've probably heard a lot about it when it comes to the context of vaccines. RNA does a lot of other things. RNA can act as a crucial messaging mechanism, a short-lived, temporary, intermediate format to get information in our genes, DNA, to the rest of the cell. Now, what happens with genes? They get expressed, they get turned on in short, sharp bursts. Problem is, if you have a gene, genes need to, in DNA, stick around forever. So how do you just activate a small bit exactly when you need it? The body does this by making RNA copies of our DNA genes. And these messages, or mRNAs, reflect the secretive bases in our DNA, and they travel out of the nucleus where DNA is into the cytoplasm, which gets translated into proteins. Proteins then go on and do all the other useful stuff, and that mRNA just simply decays or degrades. Now, that is really important in the context of sending out instructions to your immune system to ward off a virus, in the case of many of the COVID-19 vaccines. But RNA as a messaging tool also does a lot of useful things for other parts of your body. And this week we're going to talk a little bit about one of the mechanisms used in relation to your brain. I'm going to turn to a paper published in the journal Cell Reports from the University of North Carolina Healthcare Group. And in that team, a number of different authors with lead authors being Vijay Sahari and Ayumi Nakamura, working under the direction of principal investigator Professor Mohanish Deshmukh. And what they focused on is the way in which microRNA, in particular microRNA 29, regulates and controls development of of brains. Now, they did this by studying the development of a mice brain. 
and they saw that this microRNA 29 was a powerful controller in the brain maturation in mammals. And when they turned on and off and changed the expression of this particular piece of RNA, well, they started to see things, behavioral differences, that seems in line with other neurodevelopmental disorders. So what exactly were they diving into here? Now, microRNAs are a short stretch of ribonucleic acid, and their job is to regulate gene expression. Now, microRNA, or MER, can directly bind to different parts of RNA from certain other genes. And this, in a way, can act as a blocker. It can be used to regulate and prevent it from being translated into a protein. Basically, they can self-regulate by using certain bits of RNA to turn on and off the gene expression and creation of proteins in other areas. And one individual microRNA may regulate multiple different genes in this way. And this is really, really useful because you want to make sure that you don't overexpress certain types of genes. Basically, if you have a trigger, which is dump and create a lot of this particular type of protein, that might be relevant at one point in time, but another condition may not want any of that at all. Or an overabundance or an oversupply could cause even worse problems. Now, that's why the expression of different parts of these genes is quite important. You create too much of proteins or send too many messages of one type, you can end up with some pretty serious health consequences or disease development. So, Professor Deshmushk and his colleagues set out to investigate what microRNAs are involved in the developmental processes of the brain, particularly after birth. Now, in this first 20 or so years of life, there's a lot going on inside our brains, the so-called maturation process, where our brains settle down and develop and form all the pathways and connections between neurons that help establish our brains. We learn new things, our brains adapt and change. That's why, amongst other things, damage to the head, concussions, or otherwise chemical damage, say from alcohol or other drugs, can cause severe issues in young children as they're developing because it can change the development of their brain. On the flip side, the young brain is also way more plastic. It's not as rigidly defined as an older brain is because it hasn't formed such tough bonds and neural connections. So knowing this, the researchers looked in particular for microRNAs that were seen inside brains. Now, obviously, they're not studying it inside humans. They're using a mouse model, which is a normally pretty good neuroscience tool for understanding brain development. And when they looked at an adult mouse brain compared to a young mouse brain, one set of microRNAs were way more common than the rest. In particular, the levels of the microRNA 29 were found 50 to 70 times higher in concentration in adult mouse brains than in young mouse brains. So this led to some interesting questions. What exactly was the role of this particular microRNA in the developmental process? How and why were they seeing so much of it in adult mouse brains compared to the younger ones? And the simplest way to test for this is actually to block that particular expression of that microRNA. So much in the same way that microRNA can regulate processes, you can understand exactly that function by turning it off and seeing what happens. Through this elimination process, you get a real good picture about what goes wrong when this gene is not present.
And when the researchers removed this MAR29 from the brains of the mouse model in the adult mice, and basically they do this by growing a mouse model without this gene present, this microRNA present. Well, when they observed this in action, what they saw is that, well, the baby mouse was born pretty normally. And it grew pretty normally, up to a point, because after a while, they started to develop a mix of problems. These problems were mostly behavioral, things like repetitive behaviors, hyperactivity, and a lot of other abnormalities that were typically seen in mouse models of neurodevelopmental disorders, disorders such as autism. Some even developed severe epileptic seizures. Now, that's interesting. They had a clear interaction pathway there. They just turned off MIR29 and observed the impact, and the impact was stark. Obviously, anything that's going to be so abundant and so present inside the mouse brain of an adult mouse is probably pretty important. And that was exactly what they were seeing here by turning it off and seeing a large amount of what they called abnormalities. Now, they looked at the gene activity in the brains of the mouse to further understand what was happening, comparing it to obviously a control group. And as expected, many of the genes inside the brain were much, much more active when MAR29 wasn't there to inhibit them, to slow them down or regulate them. And what they found was also unexpected is that a large set of genes associated with brain cells were less active in the absence of MAR29. And what's going on here is actually a further part about the way in which any system is always complexly linked. In particular, something as complex as a living being. Now, MIR29, they discovered, normally blocks a gene that encodes for an enzyme called DNMT3A. Now, this enzyme does a few things, but it does some chemical modifications called CH methylations onto the DNA and silences genes in that area. What they normally see is that the level of this enzyme rises sharply at birth of the mouse and then rapidly declines several weeks later. Basically, it's there for the initial stages and then rapidly tapers off. But when you remove MIR29, well, there's nothing there to force that sharp decline. MIR29 is actually helping regulate this other enzyme. And basically, what then happens is you see this enzyme around slicing and stopping the development of many brain cells that should have become active during the normal growth process. But instead, because nothing's there to regulate this enzyme, DNM, T3A, well, you end up with a lot of missing or mutated or different complicated brain cells. Now, some of these genes and, and the gene itself for DNMT3A has been found often in many cases to be missing or mutated when you have an individual with a neurodevelopmental disorder, which could be epilepsy, schizophrenia, autism. So, okay, this highlights further the role of MAR29. It's not just to stop many other processes going on or genes getting too much. It's also to balance the conditions of other genes that are expressing certain enzymes. And to confirm the role of this particular enzyme in causing neurodevelopmental disorders, well, they made a certain other mouse model that stopped MIR29 from managing or regulating the enzyme DNMT3A, but left rest of what genes that MIR29 regulates untouched. And this way, instead of having a macro removal, a large-scale removal of a gene, well, they had a more 
targeted nuanced approach. And when they did that, they saw it was pretty similar to the runaway case of just removing MIR-29 altogether. There were a lot of issues, seizures, early death, and other developmental issues, just like they saw in the mice without MIR-29. So this shows the complex brain chemistry that's happening inside brains and the role mRNA controls in regulating all of these and making sure that everything's kept in balance and turned on and off at the right time. When you remove this regulation or mess with it in some ways, what you can lead to is the overabundance of some genes, proteins, and in other cases, overabundance of other chemicals and enzymes, which just then corrupts, mutates, or slices up, silences other brain cell development. Another way of putting it is, if you don't have all of these puzzles working together in their synchronized dance over the lifetime of a mouse or a human, well, then the whole developmental process is thrown for a loop, and all those systems as they're evolved no longer work as they should. So developing a brain and reaching it to maturity, getting it to be all smoothed out and working well, it's a complicated process, and mRNA plays a key role in managing, as we've learned in mRNA 29, at least in the case of mice, having that in a healthy balance, looking after and regulating proteins and enzymes around it through the life cycle of development. So this is a great paper published in the journal Cell Reports involving collaborations between researchers for University of North Carolina, Harvard University, with lead authors being Vijay Sahari, Ayuma Nakamura, a large team of collaborators. innovative use of RNA to help protect your brain to another, this time involving making sure your brain gets enough oxygen. So tissue in your brain, particularly your brain tissue, well, it needs oxygen in order to function, just like any muscle or organ in your body. If you don't supply it with enough oxygen, well, it leads to a whole bunch of bad stuff happening. It's called ischemia. And effectively, when you cut off the oxygen supply, you basically cut off the ability of cells to really function. The whole cellular metabolism process just falls apart. That damages the tissue, leads to all kinds of issues. And you may have this on limbs, you might have this on extremities, and in traumatic cases as well, you can have it on the brain. The problem is when your brain starts to run out of oxygen, it leads to the death of neurons, which of course results in strokes. So this can lead to some pretty serious consequences. And the problem is, there hasn't really been a good way to help protect your brain and avoid this kind of damage. Researchers from the Tokyo Medical and Dental University, TMDU, have recently outlined a new method in the journal Biomaterials. Now, lead authors on this paper, Yuta Fukushima, Satoshi Uchida, a large range of collaborators, Looking for is a way to produce some kind of tool to assist in the brain's production of oxygen and to protect neurons in cases when there isn't much oxygen to go around. Now, what they looked at was a particular protein called brain-derived neurotropic factor. Now, this protein, BDNF, can enhance the survival and functions of neurons. Basically, the idea is if you make neurons more resilient, then they're going to be less susceptible to damage and more hardy. Another way to think about it is trying to make drought-resistant plants. 
If you breed a plant species or provide a plant with some boost, then it can weather the storm or lack of rain and particular environmental stress put on it. In the same way, this protein, BDNF, helps the neurons weather the storm of a traumatic event, in this case, a lack of oxygen. The problem is that the protein, BDNF, it's too large in size. The molecules inside it are just physically too big. And this creates issues because around the brain is the blood-brain barrier. And this is a very important protective mechanism that keeps your brain safe from a whole bunch of stuff. But at the same time, it makes it hard to effectively get medicine or treatments where it's needed to get to in the brain. So if this protein is too large to cross the blood-brain barrier, how do you get it to where it's most needed, the central nervous system and the neurons inside? Without this mechanism clearly defined, the promise of BDNF, this great tool, this protein that can be used to make neurons more survivable and resilient, just couldn't be used inside brains. So the researchers turned to a way to produce the BDNF exactly where it's needed most, inside the brain. Rather than relying on external delivery from another part of the body or through an injection means, why not make the brain be able to deliver itself? And to do this, they turned to messenger RNA, mRNA. They designed a delivery system containing the BDNF protein through mRNA, which basically has all the information that the brain cells and areas around it needed to produce the BDNF. When the mRNA gets inside the cell, it's used like a blueprint to help produce that protein. That protein then gets churned out exactly where it's needed. The system, which is known as an mRNA nanomycelle, is basically like a tiny ball-like parcel of mRNA surrounded by a bunch of polymer strands. The polymers keep that mRNA safe from molecules that might try and, well, break it down and clean it up. In other words, disguise it from all of those processes inside your body that keep you safe from stray bits of mRNA normally, like your immune system. Now, whilst it also protects the mRNA, it allows it to time when you want it to be released. And by selecting polymers with certain properties, you can actually make sure that the mRNA is targeted and released at exactly where you want it to go. Now, when they tried this therapy, this hyper-precision piece of medicine on rats who had experienced this brain ischemia, they were found to increase the survival of the key hippocampal neurons by a large amount. In particular, the nanomycelle showed better effects when administered maybe two days after than when given immediately. And that means that the nanomycelles were given the extended opportunity to provide effective treatment. So effectively, when you keep going with this treatment based on the results from their delayed trial initially, they, they saw 20 days of observation and testing with nanomycelles administered on both day two and day five. This kind of therapeutic benefit was really quite seen because the treated rats showed way better spatial memory than the untreated rats in May's experiments. Now, what this demonstrates is that you have a treatment window. It's not immediate. You don't have to get it straight away, which is good news when it comes to particularly to recovering from a traumatic incident like a stroke. The body's under so much pressure that you don't really want to be doing too many things at once. So even if you delay it by a day or two, you can still have good results. And, well, you can also have a multiple dosing implementate 
which would give a long-term therapeutic boost in performance and recovery of the brain. Another way of helping the brain look after itself and repair itself. Now, this mechanism has only been demonstrated in a rat model, but if applied and developed further into a human-based trial, this could be a really effective tool for helping doctors treat damage to brains, particularly from something which at the moment we have no real easy treatment for. This is a real novel use of RNA, in particular messenger RNA, mRNA, to help tackle a big problem in medicine and keep our brains safe. By designing a tool that can get the right protein to boost recovery produced exactly where you need it. Some great research from the Tokyo Medical and Dental University, TMDU, with lead authors Yuta Fukushima, Satoshi Uchida, published in the journal Biomaterials. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out how microRNA helps regulate and control the development of brains and the way mRNA can be used to help produce proteins to boost brain recovery after some traumatic events. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.